You know, really, we're going to be in Nehemiah 2, starting in verse 9, if you want to go ahead and be turning there. But, but really, this whole bless the city initiative, this time, is about the people of God, which are you, you who are in Christ, having the heart of God, caring about the things that God cares about, and joining in the work of God, the, the people of God, you who are in Christ, having a heart like God, and then joining in, in the work of God, what, what God is doing, what God is accomplishing all around us. And that's exactly what we see in our text. We're going to survey chapter 2, verse 9, through chapter 3 in the sermon today, but we're just going to be reading verse 9 through 20 of chapter 2. So follow along. We hear these words from Nehemiah, of course, coming to us by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So let's hear together the word of Christ. Nehemiah 2.9. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me the officers of the army and the horsemen. But when Sanballat the Hornite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem and was there for three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me. I told no one that my, what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one that I rode. I went out by the valley gate and to the dragon spring and to the dung gate. And I expected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went to the fountain gate and to the king's pool. There was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall and I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. And I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who to do the work. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates are burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them that the hand of my God had been upon me for good and also the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, well, then let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hand for the good work. But when Sinbalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of this, they jeered at us, despised us, and said, what is this thing that you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper. And we, his servants, will arise and build, and you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord. Now, chapter 3 is kind of a hard text to read aloud. <laughs> there's a lot of names. There's a lot of descriptions. It's kind of hard to follow along. So for the sake of time, I'm not going to read it aloud. But it's an amazing text. It basically surveys how the people of God respond to this thing that Nehemiah has just said. 
He says, let's go build. And, and what we see is all of these people, all of these people of God, the people of Israel, the, the people of Judah coming together and in an amazing way, building this wall, repairing this, repairing Jerusalem, restoring Jerusalem. So, so we're going to get to that, but, but we have a lot to get to today. And so three things that I, I do want to think about as we consider the, these passages. And the first is the reality of the city. The second is the way of work in the city. And then third, the right motivation for the city. So let's look at the reality of the city. If you've been with us, we've obviously been studying Nehemiah. Nehemiah is a post-exilic book, okay? If you're kind of new to Old Testament studies, this is a book in the post-exilic part of the Old Testament. And if you don't know what that means, I'm just gonna refer to you to previous sermons in this series today. Um, but it's, Nehemiah was originally written as kind of one book, Ezra Nehemiah, they were later divided up, but it's, it's better to understand them as a unified whole. And in the first movement of this larger Ezra-Nehemiah book, a man named Zerubbabel goes back and restores the temple in Jerusalem. The Israelite people, the Jewish people are coming back from, Ez, uh, from exile. And so they first restore the temple. And then Ezra goes and preaches the law. The law, the word of God is being restored among the people. And then this is this third movement. Jerusalem, the kingdom, this great city is being restored, is being put back together again. And of course, what, what, what you've missed is that a report of the condition of Israel, of Jerusalem in particular, has come to Nehemiah while he was serving as actually serving as the king of Persia, Artaxerxes Cupbearer. He was in a very important position. And he hears the state of the walls of Jerusalem. He, he seeks into prayer. He seeks God, as Jeremy was just saying. And, and God gives him this vision that he is to go back and restore Jerusalem, rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And God has great favor on him. In fact, Artaxerxes, the enemy king, funds the project, gives him his blessing. And he gives him these two letters that he mentions here. Now, the first letter was to the governors of the provinces beyond the river. And actually we see how important those letters were because what? As soon as he gets there and starts seeking the welfare of the people of Israel, he gets opposition. These, these people come against him. Look at uh, verse nine. It says, I came to the governors of the province beyond the river, gave them the king's letter. Now the king had sent me officers of the army and horsemen, but the Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite servant, heard this, and it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. We see the same kind of reflection in verse 19. When Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite servant, and, and now here's Geshem of, of Arab, the Arab. When they heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us. What is this thing you're doing? Are you rebuilding against the king? So the, the, the first letter gave him protection. The second letter gave him material and supplies, which we're going to see is incredibly important. But this task is massive. And this is really the first time that Nehemiah, he's heard of it, but this is the first time he lays eyes on it. We read about his inspection. I inspected the walls of Jerusalem in verse 13 that were broken down. It's gates that had been destroyed by fire. 
And he talks about going from gate to gate, fountain gate, the king's pool. And here at this gate, you couldn't even get an animal through the gate. It was in such disrepair. And there's no way to state the importance of Jerusalem. It's hard for, I think, us to understand. We don't have anything like Jerusalem. But, but the symbol that it was for the identity of the people of Israel, it was their city. I mean, it, it would be like, Jerusalem would be like if you could take, you know, uh, the Statue of Liberty, the Golden Gate Bridge, the Grand Canyon, uh, the church that you grew up in and your family farm and put it all together. This is how these people would have thought of it. There was a sense of national pride in Jerusalem. There was a sense of emotional connection in Jerusalem. It was a place of worship. It was a sacred place for them. There's no way to overstate the importance of Jerusalem to the people. And now here it is in ruins. There's no way to overstate how devastating that would have been to them. You know, I, I, I think of just things that come to mind, like the September 11th attacks, how devastating it was for us to watch these great symbols of America be destroyed. But it was more than that. Again, there was a personal connection. It, if you can combine that kind of devastation along with you know, the moment that, you know, if I talked to a friend not too long ago who had to sell a house that had been in his family for 150 years. And he was, he was really in mourning over it. So much had happened there that was so meaningful to his personal story. And, you know, I talked to another person recently who they're in a church and the church is not really going to make it. And they're really mourning over this idea of having to leave this place that so much has happened. That's, that's what this was like. Jerusalem. Jerusalem, their, their national pride, this great place of worship, this place of identity for the people is now in total ruins. Nehemiah sees this and it's jarring. He sees the reality of the city and he jumps to action. This story is so encouraging for me, especially as we are a church that have been given commands by Christ, hard commands. If you're with us at the members meeting last week, we talked about being a church that is obedient both to the great commission of the Lord Jesus Christ. The great commission is that we, the people of God, would go and make disciples. And part of making disciples is obviously preaching the gospel, teaching people to follow in the way of Christ. And then of course it includes, as we see in the New Testament, planting churches and following God's teaching, the, the word of God, pointing elders, and then doing that again, preaching the gospel, calling people to faith in Jesus, making disciples, teaching them to observe, planting churches, appointing elders. We see this over and over and over. Jesus says very clearly, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go and make disciples of all nations, 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Preach the gospel, make disciples, plant churches, appoint elders, be faithful to God's word. We see this thrust all throughout the New Testament. We see this clear command of Christ. We as a church want to be faithful to this command. But we also have a command from the Lord, from the same Lord, that, that we will refer to as the great commandment. It tells us to love God and to love others. To love God and to love others. To love our neighbors as we love ourselves. And when you look at the ministry of Jesus, he has incredible concern for this. He heals he casts out demons. He brings life. He feeds. He restores. He brings dignity. There's incredible concern for, for the most difficult places of this world. And one of the old catechisms says Jesus was willing to endure all of the miseries of this life. I like that description of our Lord. He wasn't afraid of the miserable places. He wasn't afraid of the prisoner, of the person who was sick, he wasn't afraid of the needy, the hungry, the person who was a total outcast, the, the person who everyone else looked on with shame. That, that seems to be over and over and over throughout the gospel narrative exactly the place that Jesus shows up. So we want to be a church that's faithful to both of these things. Great commission, making disciples, baptizing, teaching, planting churches, seeing the gospel go forward. Great commandment bringing restoration and love and, 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 the word of, and the work of Christ to the most needy among us. But sadly, this, is, this has become kind of a dividing point in some churches. There are some churches that are incredibly focused on the Great Commission, making disciples. That's all they want to talk about. And, and they don't like, they don't really, they ignore some of the needs that are right around them. At the same time, there's other churches that, that don't like to talk about the Great Commission and the exclusive offer of the gospel that salvation comes only in Jesus. And, and all that they want to talk about is doing ministry, mercy work or justice work. I think this is bad. <laughs> We've come to this place where it's an either or. When, when Jesus has given us both of these very clear commands, great commandment and great commission. We want to be faithful in both of these. And I just want to say, look, God has given us some grace in this, but we have a long way to go. And I think there's so much opportunity here. I, I want to let you in on something. We, as a church, have one of the things we've been talking about in 2021 a lot is purchasing this building, which I think is an amazing milestone for us. And we're really excited about that. And by God's grace, we hope, we pray, please be praying. Our contractor says that we should be able to move into the building before Labor Day of 2022, okay? And what's kind of interesting about that is that will be about the same time that we'll celebrate five years as a church, which I think is just an interesting timeline reality. Then five years, the Lord's established a church. He's given us this place of worship. And, and I think it, it will really be in this next year, 2022, that, that, that we as a church need to take some of our next steps. What, what do the next five years look like for us? 
And one of those I hope and pray is that we would even take a further step of obedience in these two commands, these great commandment and great commission commands, that we would be more faithful in multiplying ourselves as a church and making disciples, planting churches, seeing the gospel go to some of the hardest to reach places, more faithful to be a blessing to the, to the marginalized of our city. But before we get too excited <laughs> about the next five years of ministry here, I think that this text in some ways serves as a warning. It's just a sobering reminder. We wanna be faithful to the Great Commission a church that plants churches in strategic places that engages the hardest to reach people. But I just want you to hear this. Church planting is hard. Engaging unreached people is hard. Preparing church planters, training up ministers, all of this is really hard. And it's gonna take a lot of commitment. Nehemiah goes into this city and he sees the reality of what God has called him to do and he realizes this is hard, but he jumps to action. I, I hope that we have the same heart. I just wanna kind of give you a, a snapshot of where we are. You know, right now, in 2021, 10% of the global population, I think, as missiologists say, we can say with some certainty are, are faithful Christ followers. There's, there's fruit in their life. We can say these people are following the Lord, which is really, when you think of the global population, that's a huge number of people. It's amazing. Another 22% are nominally Christian. Now, certainly some of those are believers, but certainly some of those are probably not believers. 40% have gospel access, but are not believers. 28% really have no exposure to the gospel of Jesus Christ. They, they are part of a people group. They live in a place where there's really no faithful gospel witness near them. If we are going to be a church that's faithful to the commission of Christ to make disciples of all nations, this represents a monumental and huge task. And there's resistance. Just like Nehemiah, there are naysayers. There are people in the world particularly in parts of the world dominated by Islam that are militantly opposed to the advance of the gospel. In, in parts of the Eastern world, we see the same kind of oppression. Even in the secular world that we live in, there is a belittling, there is a belittling resistance to the gospel message and to the belief that Jesus is Lord. Obedience to the Great Commission, real obedience to the Great Commission, a command of our Lord is hard. Let's be ready for that. Now, there is good news. I want you to know the work is happening. I do think Christians can always present these things as these as if we're in some really bad state right now. I do want you to know that there are more Christians on earth right now than there have ever been. Christianity is growing Right now, Christianity is growing against the population. So the work is being done. More people groups are being engaged for the gospel right now than have ever been engaged in the history of the church. So there's a lot of reason to celebrate, but there is a lot of work yet to do. The reality of the Great Commission is hard. And the reality of the Great Commandment is also really hard. Is Atlanta better? Is Atlanta being restored, ministered to, cared for? Is there more 
wholeness here? Is there, is Atlanta more moral? Are people being cared for because Christ's covenant exists? You know, I ask myself that question. Is, is Atlanta being ministered to? Is Atlanta more whole because we are here? And, and as we say, the church has always been a leader in this kind of ministry. This kind of just caring for the basic needs. It's the church that's fed, for, fed people. It's the church who started hospitals. It's the church who started schools. It's the church who's done these things. There's been an understanding that when Jesus went to a place, he identified with the struggles of that place. And that's exactly what we are called to do as, as Christians. But the reality of this, the reality of the city is hard. Poverty is hard. Helping people flourish is hard. Education, you know, we just talked about uh, Boyd Elementary School. When, when you look at Boyd and so many of the other schools in our city, these people that live around us, the access, to, access that these children have to actually learning how to read and actually getting to a place where they can flourish, it's very limited. Do we care? Do we care? We live in a world of political division and racial division and, and trust issues everywhere. It's very hard to get anybody of any different camp working together. And this should cause us to lament. We live in a city of great sexual immorality and things related to that, like the porn industry and human trafficking. We're seeing families broken up. We're seeing people being abused. And look, I'm not coming today with, with solutions on these things outside of the gospel of Jesus Christ, but, but I do want to say two things. Christians are not people who assimilate into a culture and take on the worldview of that culture, but neither are we a people who separate from a culture. Christians are not the kind of people Followers of Jesus are not the kind of people that turn a blind eye to the hurting, to the poor, to the needy around us. That, that is not the way of Christ. It may be the way of comfort, but it's not the way of our Lord. Jesus identifies with the stranger, with the sick, with the person in prison, with the hungry, with the thirsty. This is who Jesus identifies with. And I believe this, the more you have a concern for this kind of person, the more you'll see Christ at work in your life. But this is hard. The great commission, the great commandment, these are daunting tasks. Which brings me to the next point, the way of work in the city. How does any of this happen? What's so encouraging about chapter three, and, and again, I, I would encourage you just to go read it and see how it all comes together this afternoon. What's so encouraging is you have people from all different tribes, from all different levels, coming together, working together to, to really do something amazing. The fact that the walls of Jerusalem are restored is phenomenal, and they when they're not good, they don't finish in chapter three, but they make tremendous progress. And I think this is incredibly instructive to us. You know, a lot of Israel's history, it seems that God is kind of dealing with, with one person 
Uh, and, and he's working on behalf of the people. Uh, David, working on behalf of the people. Or Moses, famously working on behalf of the people, advocating for the people, being righteous for the people as a mediator. But here in Nehemiah, we see Nehemiah calling out, equipping, preparing, and the people coming together to do this task. This is incredibly instructive for us. And it's actually the same kind of model that we see in the New Testament. Ephesians 4:11 talks about church leaders who equip all of the saints, all of the church. Church leaders, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers who equip all of the saints for the work of the ministry. I think in a lot of 21st century churches we have this backwards where people have this mindset of I'm going to equip the cool preacher. I'm going I'm to equip the pastor. He does the work of the ministry. I just got to give and bring my friend and he'll disciple and he'll evangelize and he'll do all the stuff. And the reason I think a lot of Christians think that is that's what churches sell. Just give, just bring your friend. We'll take care of the rest. We're a good service provider. But the way of the scripture is no, it's a church, yeah, God has given his church church leaders and we are grateful for that with all different sort of gifts, apostolic gifts, prophetic gifts, evangelistic gifts, pastoral and teaching gifts. But these church leaders are to equip you, the saints, the followers of Christ, all of the people of God for the work of the ministry. Here's the deal, church. You have gifts and you are building you have gifts given to you by the Lord and you are building. You are building something. You are using your life somehow. You know, it's interesting. This is not the first time the people of Israel come together to build something. In fact, that was a big part of their history. We are talking this week in our sermon teaching meeting and... Um, we talk about what they did in Egypt. I mean, think about the people of Israel in Egypt. They built a lot of stuff there. They built structures there so impressive that they're still in existence today. The, these people of Israel had a long history building things. Only when they were building in Egypt, they were in bondage. <laughs> they weren't building for the Lord. They were building for someone else. I would ask you this question. You have gifts and you are building where are you using those gifts and who are you working for? Are you really leveraging the gifts that God has given you for the sake of his kingdom? Are you stewarding what God has given you for him or for someone else? Are, are you wasting your gifts? Are you building under bondage or are you building for the Lord? And look, this, this doesn't mean that everyone here needs to work for the church. That's not what I'm saying. Don't, don't, don't miss this. There's really two things here. My call is that everyone would live with gospel intentionality and that everyone would have an identifiable ministry. That's my real hope for you. That's God's hope for you, that you would live with gospel intentionality and that you would have some identifiable ministry. What does living with gospel intentionality mean? It means this. It means doing the things that you normally do just with gospel intentionality. Some of you are nurses, but are you a nurse for the hospital or are you a nurse for the Lord? And if you're a nurse for the Lord, 
then you're a nurse and there's somebody that may be a nurse for the hospital. A lot of what you do looks similar, but in your life, there's a gospel intentionality. And the way you serve and the way you speak and the way you're patient and the way that you seek to be an ambassador for the Lord, in all of these ways, the gospel is known through you, through normal things. Some of you are in business. We always talk about this. Are, are you going to your job to get a life or are you going to your job with a life as a child of God, with an identity? And, and if you can do that with gospel intentionality, it'll totally change the way you work, the way you treat people, the way you see other people, the way you feel called in what you're doing. Are you, are you living your life with any gospel intentionality? And do you have any sort of ministry that, that you've taken a hold of that you can say, yes, I, I'm, I'm putting my hand to the plow in this way. Now, I remember I was a freshman in college. I'll never forget this. And I had a, a friend that I, we were just talking about the Lord. And, and his friend said to me, look, what is your ministry, Jason? And I said, well, you know, I'm a nice guy and I try to like be a Christian. I, I think I was saying I have some gospel intentionality. But my friend said, I, I appreciate this challenge to this day. Yeah, but what is your ministry? What are you doing for other people without expecting anything in return? How are you putting your hand to the plow of God's kingdom work? What is your ministry? What are you building? Where are you building? Who are you working for? You all have gifts. You are all building. Are you serving another master or are you serving the Lord? The way of work in the city, the way that God's really going to change Atlanta and through Atlanta, the world is, is when this starts to happen. When the people of God start living with a piercing gospel intentionality and when the people of God start taking hold of ministry, that's what's going to move the needle. And that brings me to the final point, the right motivation for the city. Looked at the reality of the city, the way of work in the city. But then lastly here, the right motivation for the city. Now, again, as we continue in the text today, and we continue the text in future weeks, we begin to see opposition to the work today. It's only gonna continue. Opposition to this wall has only really just begun, both from outsiders and from insiders. I mean, the fact that this is even completed, by the time we get to the end of the book, the fact that this is even completed is really amazing. And, and it gets back to this. Nehemiah understood that God had a greater work going on. There, there was a greater redemptive plan in place. These themes that we've been talking about that God would be present among a people, that those people would know the character of God through his word. And, and as those people live together, they would be a kingdom people. And through that kingdom, the whole world would be blessed. Nehemiah knew these themes. He knew that God was bringing about redemption. And thus, even in the face of the greatest opposition, he was incredibly faithful. 
You know, as we go through this bless the city time in the life of our church, I, I hope you are motivated. I hope you're encouraged. I hope you take hold of these things. I hope you pray and the Lord really speaks and says, look, this is for you. This is, this is how I've equipped you. This is where I'm calling you. This is where, this is where you need to be serving. I hope that happens. But I just wanna say, what is the right motivation for that? If you go out seeking to do a good thing so that people will thank you, if you go out seeking to do a good thing so that you'll be effective, so you'll really see progress in someone else's life, if you go out seeking to do good things so that it'll make you feel really good, here's the deal. You may do that one or two times, but you will never stick with it. I'm going to tell you, a life of service, <laughs> if you start living a life of service, where you really start giving yourself away, where you really start trying to, to give yourself away without expecting anything in return, <laughs> people are going to take advantage of you. People won't thank you. You won't get a lot in return <laughs> in this life. Even when you have the best motivation, the best motivation, people will criticize you and be cynical against you. It's amazing. If, if you go out seeking a life of service with the motivation of it'll make me feel better, I'll be thanked, people will recognize me, you'll be tired, cynical, and bitter. The only way, the only way to really impact the world really change the world, really bring about this redemptive work. The only way to really obey this command of Christ is that you have to know the way of Christ. You know, like Nehemiah, Jesus came to serve a people that did not recognize him. Like Nehemiah, Jesus came to serve a people that often didn't listen to him. Like Nehemiah, Jesus came to serve a people that didn't appreciate him. Only Jesus was God. Jesus was the one who had always loved and preserved Israel. And yet when he came to his own, his own did not receive him. In fact, not only did they didn't receive him, they ridiculed him, they reviled him, they ultimately killed him. And we have treated our Lord the same way. We have been faithless we have complained. We have been short-tempered. We have been divided. We have been foolish. Yet despite our faithlessness, Jesus has been so faithful. In fact, it is our faithlessness that proves how great his love is. How does God prove the wonder and the width and the breadth and the depth of his love for us? It is this, that even when we are in our sin, even while we were sinners, Christ loved us and pursued us and gave himself for us and died for us. Jesus came to give his life for you even when you were faithless to him. And I just want you to hear this. If you believe that, if that has taken root in your life, that the God of this universe came to forsake himself and even be put to death through your sin and because of your sin. If, that's, if that takes root in your heart, then that will change you. That will give you 
a true heart of love for other and not just love of self, seeking a nice pat on the back or a thank you or a nice warm feeling when you do something kind. That'll, that'll actually give you a heart of love for people that are really, really hard to love. And that's how this kingdom, this kingdom of Christ will start to come. That's how this will of God will start to be done. That's how this kingdom will start to penetrate all of the kingdoms of this world. When we know the way of Christ and when we, like him, live that out. Jesus has shown us love and service in the most profound way by loving faithless and sinful people, by giving himself even to the point of death for faithless and sinful people, the more we know this, the more we know this, the more we'll be like this. And so let's think about these things as we pray. <sighs> Father, we live in a broken city It's a city of crime. It's a city of poverty in many cases. It's a city of division, a lack of trust, corruption. We live in a broken world. There are all sorts of systems of this world that are far from your heart. And yet, despite all of our brokenness, Lord, you desire to redeem the world and you are redeeming the world. You are at work in the world. And part of that work is, is happening right here. That you would redeem sinners like us. You would call people like us who have been far from you to fellowship, to life with you, Lord. And so, Lord, I, I pray now for your church, for myself, that you would use us, that you would use us, that you would use Christ's covenant and that you would use other churches in our city that love Jesus to redeem this city, to bring faithfulness and restoration, the fear and love of the Lord to our city. And that through our city, you'd begin to touch other cities that Churches and church planters and missionaries would be sent out even to the far corners of the world, Lord. There is so much work to be done. But Lord, I believe in your redemptive work. Help us to, help us to believe further, even now as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, how you have redeemed us. And how even when we were far from you, even when we were dead in our sins, you have made us alive in Christ. May you increase our faith in these things. May you give us the faith to be your kingdom agents for the sake of others. And I pray all this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.